Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Poet S.T. Brandt is a Las Vegas high school teacher, Honest Ulsterman, Echo Theo, Timber, and Rain Taxi are just a few of the journals in which he's been published. Atmosphere Press published his debut collection of poetry, Melody in Exile. The book has, been, has received positive reviews and is regarded as a must-read. I would like you to help me extend a warm welcome to S.T. Bright. Hello, sir. Hi, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm glad you're here. I want to hear all about Melody in Exile. Let's begin this poetic journey, all right? Yeah, sounds good. What is poetry to you, S.T.? <laughs> all right. <laughs> that's, that's always a question people have, and it's never easier to answer, really. I've, it's impossible to say. I guess it's... Mm-hmm. You know, I guess we were going to be the, the theological term cataphatic, which I think helps make sense with it, which just means that it's something that you learn through affirmation because it affirms itself everywhere. So simply we can think of it, there's a genre poetry, which is then, you know, what, the, what looks like a poem just formally, visually. Uh, post poetry kind of confuses those boundaries, but we don't need to uh, split hairs kind of in that way. But then there's poetic prose, which just moves you the way that poetry would so then that boundary kind of blurs so the idea then is that it's not too easy to define rather instead if we think of it inversely anaphatic it's it's easier to say what a poem is what poetry is by saying what it's not so i like to think of it that way similar to music in that when you hear music, when you hear song, sounds, when you hear songs, you can think like, oh, that's music or that's not. So mm-hmm. similar like home, I feel like there's that, that gut reaction, that gut reaction to poetry where it's like, this is poetry or this is not. Everyone will have that kind of different subjective taste in, in mm-hmm. those regards. But simply like if something's intended to be poetry, then we should give it the benefit of the doubt and be generous that even if we don't like it, <laughs> we recognize that, yeah, it's poetry. Uh, but ultimately, I think Beyond the formal and aesthetic and the subjective, like taste making everything, I think my personal values for what poetry is, is that mm-hmm. it, it must move you. You, you have to feel it. it, it there's right. a wind in it. So simply like that, whether it's a light breeze or a powerful tornado or whatever, you got to feel it. It, it. it has to impact you in some way uh, for it to be poetry and then accomplish what poetry is supposed to do. You know, I really like that. That's similar to a breeze, a light breeze. I like that. Tell me more about this breeze. Tell me more about the breeze. Well, so that idea is that I think that even if, so if, even if people don't necessarily feel like they get poetry, because you hear that a lot from people, but yeah. the idea is if you feel something, if it, if it hits you at all, whether it be like a line or there's an image or there's something about the poem or the writing 
that just strikes you. Then, then you felt a little breeze of it. You didn't maybe get like the full impact of the weather. You weren't caught in the storm of the poetry, we'll say, but you, you mm-hmm. did feel something. You may take for granted that you felt something, but it's important that, that when you read poetry, you're open to experience. Cause I think poetry is also very experiential. You are experiencing a lot of stuff while you're reading it, but a lot of it's internal stuff. You have to be really open to how you're feeling and how you're responding to the poems and let it work on you. But you will feel something if you just approach it with that openness. And even if you don't get it, maybe it doesn't always resonate with you, but you'll feel something, you know, maybe like a nice gentle breeze or whatever, but you can can build from that. You know, I may take that from you. That is really nice. I loved the way you described it. I think I may put that in my back pocket. So if you hear it again, you know where it came from, you. All right? Why is poetry important? You define what it is brilliantly. Why is it important? So I think that it isn't, which... I mean, very positively. It sounds Mm -hmm. like not positive, but I actually think that there's a lot of freedom with it not being important in in like those air quotes, because some things that are important that are like globally important and everything like that, you know, politics Mm -hmm. are important, but we all hate each other (laughs) before it. Schools and education are important, but they keep continuously get their funding cut or whatever. So when things Mm -hmm. are important, there's, there's a lot of people that mess with important things and try to put their stamp on it, whatever. So there's the more important something is it it oftentimes seems like there's less freedom involved in it. So I I love in poetry because it's vastly important. It's the most important thing in the world to a lot of people, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, uh, it's not important in that uh, it, it doesn't get caught up you know, there's a lot of inner politics with these things, but it doesn't get caught up in, in kind of that nastiness, that dirtiness. So there's not that muddiness of some things with it. So <clears throat> I think that that's great because it allows it to be very inwardly important without necessarily so much of the corruption of the outer world. Poetry is important <clears throat> because it works on our passions. It helps change us as people internally. And then we can bring that change outward to the world, uh, similar to, our feelings like we love inwardly we love others but that love is an inner drive and then it mm-hmm. acts on us and we act we manifest that word outwardly so i think poetry is very similar and it's very important to us internally but all the significance all the importance and all the impact of poetry that happens outwardly is generated from that inner experience so poetry is important on a very micro personal level uh, and then we can bring that importance outward to the world, but we have to let it work it upon us first. You know, I've never heard that before. And that's a very interesting take on poetry. Sometimes there are muddy waters in terms of the publishing poetry business. You know, people feeling that they've been rejected in terms of their work. I mean, all kinds of things because we're human first and things do happen. What do you think of that? Yeah, definitely. And that's not to say that, you know, there's not any sort of uh, that messiness that, that everything is, is a victim to in, in the inner world of, of literature, because of course yes. it is. Uh, but because there's, uh, there's, of course, the, you know, the powers that be that decide the things against us. But ultimately, 
art is experiential and art is personal. And even when we're, when we feel like we're suppressed uh, artistically from out the outside, and sometimes people are, there are sometimes there's those outer, those outer resistances that do suppress people, but we're going to speak more broadly and, and positively. Uh, but even, but there's always your ability to create uh, there. I, I like that with poetry and its importance in that it empowers people and mm-hmm. that uh, eventually if you just keep going, uh, you know, it's hard to tell myself this at times too, even, but if you just keep going and you just make something brilliant and powerful with the full capacity of yourself, you can, you can wake the world up to the beauty oh, wow. of what you're doing. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Melody in Exile, your first poetry collection. Let's talk about the title first. Tell me about the title. So, I was all over the place with titles. It took me a really a really long time to get to the title. In fact, I submitted the book and the book was accepted under a different title. Uh, and then it went through all these re- it went through like this vast revision and settled on a new title. The title is actually one of the poems in the book, uh, Melody in Exile. But I thought that the title also served a very uh, broad purpose for the book in capturing. Uh, the two major words in that melody, because one of the the themes throughout the book and one of the major metaphors of a lot of the poems is music, but melody and harmony in particular are two sort of very distinct terms that have a a kind of dialectical meaning for me in the book. And then the sense of exile or placelessness or uh, just kind of being wandering and on a journey is also very important to a lot of the poems. So I thought the title worked well, because the title of that particular poem actually encompassed both those kind of elements. And I'm like, oh, this will work out for me. All right. So what inspired Melody in Exile? So a lot of these poems were kind of years spread out from each other because I've been writing seriously since high school is when I is when I consider that for myself, when the we'll say the journey kind of started. And then Obviously, none of those made the book because those are all terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then, you know, you, you, you go through. And so early to late 20s, and now I'm, I'm in my 30, 31. So the early to late 20s, uh, when this book was kind of in process, some of these poems date back from my early 20s that were touched up a little bit and all that. So the idea is I didn't really have a vision for the book. But then when I, once I started like thinking like, oh, I should put a book together, because as you, as you noted, rejections and everything. I was getting tons mm-hmm. of rejections for journals. Mm-hmm. I was getting into journals, but then also getting rejected from a lot of them. So my attitude was like, well, hey, maybe my stuff works better in a collection. Maybe okay. uh, the reason that I don't fit into all these journals so well is because I just need to surround myself with myself, like build my poems around each other, and I'll try mm-hmm. to submit a book. And so once I undertook that project, I would you know, scour through and I found old poems. I wrote some new ones and I was like, okay, I've been kind of working uh, with some of these themes for like, it seems like my whole life now. Let me try to find like the best ones I think that fit that. Okay. Okay. So what are some of the book's predominant themes? So that is interesting because I think it's all difficult for ourselves to assess ourselves. So we may miss, kind of our dominant themes until someone points it out to us or all these things. So I'm just going to do my best to try to capture what I, what the ones that stand out to me because right. sometimes we're, 
we're always working on these different levels, <clears throat> but, and I'll use like theme motif ideas, tropes. I'll use those kind of all just under the word theme. Cause I, I use these words very interchangeably all the time. I'm an English teacher. I shouldn't do that, but I nonetheless do. <laughs> okay. So there's this idea of journeying, exploring the, the labyrinth of the self and the soul and trying to figure out what those things are and how they piece together their purpose and what they make up, uh, trying to discover like this, this inner power, this uh, fire that, that's in us, that's that limitless capacity in us that's nonetheless limited by kind of our, our worldly self that we don't always have access to. But in moments, we feel it. We feel that something deep within us resonate. And, and when it touches us, when we are able to call it forth, that we, we have those moments of feeling like truly invincible, truly inspired and demonic, as we could say. Uh, and then there's, of course, <clears throat> mythological stuff, God, uh, the search for God, not necessarily under a religious auspice, but this idea of God and what that could be. Is, is there that thing, that ultimate thing that we're driving towards that makes sense of things? So all those spiritual anxieties are sort of in there. You have music and the ontological power of, of music and it corresponding in some sort of angelic order. Language itself, my wife pointed out to me that she thought my entire book was sort of a, a conflict of me worrying if I could ever write again. So you have that, that language and poetry itself being a, a major theme. So ultimately, these themes of mine are kind of abstract and personal as opposed to maybe like the worldly exploring the, the social situation of stuff. But uh, that's just because I've always been drawn to those sort of spiritual realms and elements. And, you know, you just kind of lean into your obsessions and there are, our obsessions are our strengths. And so I just decided like, hey, these are what I'm really interested in, the self and, and all these kind of spiritual quests. And so I'm just going to all I'm just going to go on them. Tell me more about the labyrinth. That word really stood out. Yeah, so I think that when we really do our best to try to get to, our, get to know ourselves, because mm-hmm. that, that self-knowledge is, is kind of like an always endless journey that we're on that's impossible to, to really ever solve. We're always learning new things about ourselves. And despite what people say when they say that people never change, I'd actually think that we're always changing in, in little ways, of course, okay. for sure. But, sorry, excuse me, there's always this spiritual evolution going on in us, this spiritual progression. So I think that trying to keep up with that and trying to untap, like, who you truly are uh, in, in all the elements, not just, like, your personality and things you like, but also, like, who you are in the scheme of things and who you mm-hmm. are in yourself. So it, it feels like a labyrinth when you're trying to assess these things and get to, like, that, that kernel of truth, of self-knowledge that we would say, like, this is it. Like, this is your soul. Like, this is where you are cosmically and in, in all these things. When you try to align uh, some answers with that, it feels like in order to even get anywhere, you have to go, you're turning left and right all the time. You're wandering around. You wind up where you started from so many times. You feel mm-hmm. just dizzy and vertiginous from, from yeah. that exploration. So it truly feels like the self is a labyrinth. And I feel like uh, my book and my poems really are just sort of trying to uh, wander through that labyrinth. You know, it sounds like you delve deeply into some very thoughtful topics. Talk to me about the selection process. How do you decide which poems to choose? I tried to be complimentary. Uh, I tried to, I had these ideas of the mate, what what I'm calling like my major poems, the poems that when I finished them and when I read them over again, 
I felt punched in like in the face by them. I'm like, oh, okay, this is this is like one of my best ones. So I kind of th- those ones were, were for sure it. So those were the easy ones. Okay. Then of course, then you can't just have, despite what, pe- what people think, you can't just have like a whole book of major poems. It's not going to work that way. <laughs> most most of us aren't able to create or at a in like a single time like a hundred pages of like major, major, major poem. Like usually that's for like the collected works or whatever, but you need complementary pieces. So, so you, if we think of it musically, uh, you need like some little preludes uh, or some like little, little interludes between like the heavy stuff. So I tried to pick out like the best uh, little piece, like complementary pieces that I also thought were still good, still of a, of a high quality, that still explored the things I wanted to explore, but complemented some of the major stuff in the major poems really well. So then it was about arranging those things of like making sure that I don't front load uh, all the, the major stuff up front and we, and make the back end weaker or don't uh, make the back end too heavy and make the front uh, like, so like light that people are like, Oh, they put it down before they get to the big stuff at the back. So it was a matter of balancing those major choices as well to make sure that, that it, it played through really well. So like an album that you have good tracks, and a good selection of tracks and a good arrangement of tracks, but it tells a story as well. So it's also about how do the pieces uh, work together. So the selection was kind of like, are, are they contributing to what I'm thinking, to what I'm conceiving as kind of a, a spiritual narrative arc? And are they all complementary in, in some fashion? And then also, do they just hit the, my standard of, is this good or not? <laughs> that's that's kind right. of the basic now, in terms of the organization, is the book divided into sections, chapters? Tell me about what's happening on the inside. Yes, yeah, so I, I did break it into three sections. The sections are just title one, two, three, no fancy mm-hmm. titles. But okay. the first section, uh, conceptually, it feels like uh, we can think of those as the, the Eden phase of things, basically, like uh, – we're in more of a idealistic realm, paradisical realm. Things are, things are good. We're, we're talking like the poems have kind of an aspirational uh, elevating kind of tone. Like you're, you feel like you're moving upward, uh, ascending essentially. But then you hit the the middle part, which is my long poem called harmony uh, where it's uh, sections of this myth mythology that, uh, mythological story of retelling of Genesis that I did interspliced with some dramatic uh, scenes. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the middle part. And that essentially is the, the poem that made up the entire narrative concept that everything's kind of based around. Cause that was my major project throughout my, like my twenties. <clears throat> and that then represents sort of like the transition from that idealistic phase. We go through that kind of fall that takes place in that second section then the third section is the exile phase basically where now i'm now i as a narrator am kind of in the world i'm that you have that sense of exile from your situation you're displaced and you're trying to make sense of it you're trying to get the music back that was that you heard in the garden before we we fell and it was we were locked out of it so that's essentially like the third part of trying to get back to that melody but it was lost to us in our exile when we we're sort of locked out of Eden. All right. Please share with me the titles of five of the poems in the book. Just randomly choose five. Okay. So we have the full, which makes sense. That's the All opener. Right. There's uh, 
St. Brant's Quietism. St. Brant is sort of this uh, character that I've made up to, co- to complement my, myself as the narrator. So I, I made up some epigraphs that uh, he says here and there. You have um, Melody in Exile, of course, picking flowers of the self from the selfless world. You have a Lone Mountain, which is the last poem in the book, but it's named after a mountain in Las Vegas that actually I actually live right around the corner from. And that's oh, wow. kind of the only uh, real location that I give. But that mountain, name-wise, is very symbolic. But then the mountain itself is, has been very like important to me as well. So I thought it would appropriate as a title. You know, the reason I ask, what role should a title play in terms of a poem? Yeah, that's always interesting because many poets have done very different things. Even if we mm-hmm. think of it in terms of songs, like the, we went through like the 2000s in that era when a lot of kind of pop punk bands were giving their songs ridiculous titles. <laughs> so a lot of times, so even that uh, concept has been explored through all sorts of art forms of titles are nonsense or titles have to be very purposeful. Uh, Wallace Stevens, for example, kind of titled a lot of his poems with these throwaway titles. <laughs> then, then you're kind of like, wait, what? That's a ridiculous title. Whereas some, many other poets, you know, have very purposeful titles or very simple titles. So sometimes it's a variation of simple and complex. What I like to do for myself, I like the title to help the poem. So sometimes if I think a poem. <clears throat> is very un, is like difficult uh, a, the title titling the poem of some sort of location or giving the title some sort of context helps you ground it so sometimes if i think the poem is like a dialogue we'll say well then i will use the title to ground the dialogue as contextual back uh to help the audience to be like okay here's who's talking or here's where this poem takes place so i basically like to use the title as a setup for the poem itself so you've heard this expression, uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. So for you, in terms of titling a poem, what comes first, the poem or the title? Most of the time, it would be the poem. Okay. There's, there's, every now and then there's been a time when I, like, I've had a title in mind, uh, mm-hmm. and then I was like, I'm gonna, <laughs> this is a title. And so I kind of like jammed it as a title somewhere. But generally, mm-hmm. the title is what I do last. All right. Please share a poem. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. So I think I'll start with the first poem of the book, just because I think it's a good uh, setup for the, the rest of the book and contains, and contains a lot of stuff that we've talked about. So it's called The Soul. And it's going to basically tell a story of this inner landscape of the self. And it's going to introduce Orpheus, a major kind of mythological hero throughout the book. On a precipice, a cliff overlooking a tremendous sea, waves patting the rocks provokingly, tendering those above to come, summoning them as one would a pet sitting, I dangle my legs off the edge, staring into the vacancy of life, coloring the terrible sky, a color no sky has ever been, a darkness complete, the sea one knows that by the darkness they've been seen, a bad exchange of visions, frightened, then pacified with an open secret, as when one reveals all they've done, what they have, every detail of what they're asked, and are granted the knowledge of the sun. So this intensity of darkness was such that it was too thick to coordinate with color, with shades, with Erebus, until the cosmology of you was charted through. 
No secret and no essence left ineffable, special. No silent god of the heart that you protected, befriended, that you lit and whispered what to do. The sky was dark. I kicked back and forth off the edge, my heels ricocheting off the walls, launching, and I was sitting silent when I heard a whistling, a song, a joyous chorus, and saw Orpheus down the slope, across a meadow, trees between he and I, a new headland nearing, hands tucked in his pockets, walking, whistling, in the sound of the sea, stepping, then I heard the whistle of a falling, falling endlessly, as I listened, still rocking in harmony with the singing, my feet, the falling, waiting for the new melody made, and a song lands in the sea. <clears throat> And that's the end of that poem. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, I'm the kind of guy, I like hearing poems twice. The first time I'm listening for one thing, and then the second time I'm listening for something else. So please share it again. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a good, actually, reading uh, mantra as well. That's kind of how I learned to read poems, mm-hmm. that ideally you read them once, and mm-hmm. that's just to get everything out of the way. And then you read yeah. it again. That's, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's when you really experience it. Mm-hmm. So the soul. On a precipice, a cliff overlooking a tremendous sea, waves patting the rocks provokingly, tendering those above to come, summoning them as one would a pet. Sitting, I dangle my legs off the edge, staring into the vacancy of life, coloring the terrible sky, a color no sky has ever been. A darkness complete, the sea one knows that by the darkness they've been seen. A bad exchange of visions, frightened and pacified with an open secret as when one reveals all they've done, what they have, every detail of what they're asking are granted the knowledge of the sun. So this intensity of darkness was such that it was too thick to coordinate with color, with shade, with Erebus, until the cosmology of you was charted through. No secret and no essence left ineffable, special, no silent god of the heart that you protected, befriended, that lit you and whispered what to do. The sky was dark. I kicked back and forth off the edge, my heels ricocheting off the walls, launching, and I was sitting silent when I heard a whistling, a song, a joyous chorus, and saw Orpheus down the slope across a meadow, trees between he and I, a new headland nearing, hands tucked in his pockets, walking, whistling into the sound of the sea stepping, and then I heard the whistle of a falling, falling endlessly, as I listened, still rocking in harmony with the singing, my feet, the falling, waiting for the new melody made when a song lands in the sea. That's the end of that. Wow. SC, <laughs> are you hoping that the book resonates with a broad range of readers, or are you targeting a specific audience? No, definitely the, the hope is that it resonates kind of just – it has a, a universal resonance and, and hits lots of disparate people. Yeah, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily have an audience of mine. I guess I, did, I do think maybe a particular – audience might like it more than other people like it might hit them more than just other people who read it They're like okay but ideally the dream is that it resonates with everybody okay now let's imagine for a moment that we're standing in front of a barnes and nobles there are a million people in line waiting to buy your book all right you outside with me <laughs> what would it be <laughs> what advice would it be that you would give your readers before they read the book? What would you tell them to set the stage? I would tell them advice that taken me a long time to learn, uh, mm-hmm. but that is, has been most helpful in just discovering new authors and everything, which is just don't be intimidated. <laughs> Not okay. to say that like my, my books ultimately like profound or, or a 
or one of the classics or anything like that. But the idea is I think when a lot of people encounter a book and anything new is presented into them, like say vocabulary or all this and that, people tend to shut down a little bit because they feel, they worry that they're not smart enough. And so my idea, my, what I would tell the readers is don't worry, you're, you're, you're plenty smart. You're probably smarter than me, but, but don't, mm-hmm. but don't worry uh, if like you have that feeling. Cause that's a good feeling in poetry. That, that's the feeling of being challenged of, of, yourself changing in response to something so ultimately if you read read something and you feel anxious like oh this is my i don't know explore that keep going push through that because that's when the best uh reading takes place so i I would tell people like hey don't be intimidated you're plenty smart to read any poetry there is in the world but uh the idea is if you intimidate yourself before a book thinking like oh that book's already too hard then not only what say like my book but every other book that's out there that books that many books have written now are based on or that draw inspiration from you close yourself Mm -hmm. off to. All right. So when you think about writing this book, the time, the effort, the energy, the whole nine yards, what do you think you learned about yourself writing this book? Ultimately, I (laughs) feel like I tend to not live in the moment. I immediately okay. move on to the, want to move on to the next thing. And, and I'm already, sorry, excuse me. And I'm always worried about like, okay, now that that's done, can I do it again? What's the next move? So, sorry, excuse me. Uh, so sorry. definitely that was, re- that was reinforced in me. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I learned ultimately is that, uh, I guess it, it'll be more of a criticism is, sorry. is that, uh, I, I can do better. <laughs> like after the okay. book came out, and I, and I like the book, and like I love the poems in there. They mean a lot to me. But after reading it and putting it down, I'm like, the the next one, I I know what to do. <laughs> so okay. the idea is like, I immediately learned that like, hey, I'm not I'm not I'm not done. <laughs> I have like bigger ideas or bigger things. So it it was a, still a good thing. It's not like necessarily a criticism. But I learned that my ambition is not satisfied with just the one book, but that there's there's ambitions and beliefs that the best book is not out yet. Wow. It's nice. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the cover. What was the process like for creating the cover? The cover is actually an uh, illustration by William Blake. Uh, and so let me see if I can find the exact title. Of it. Yeah. Uh, Jerusalem, the emanation of the giant Albion. So that's his, uh, illustration of his own kind of mythological works that he that he's doing but I knew I wanted a really like nice cover I was kind of always thinking I wanted like a painting or something not necessarily mm-hmm. like a mocked up one but I was just re- flipping through this art book that I have not for not even looking for covers I was just happened to be flipping through it and I happened on that picture and I was like and it just that picture just like me completely I, I became obsessed with it when I saw it and so then when it came time to what are some ideas for a cover or they were asking me like hey about the cover I sent them that so like I know what the cover is I want this mm. illustration <laughs> so, so right. the cover the, the idea for the picture using it just happened to work out thematically with the book but uh, the cover the picture itself was always in my mind since I saw it all right please share another poem <clears throat> Okay, uh, I'll go with the second poem in the book, St. Brant's Quietism. 
just because I really like it. All right. So it's dedicated to Hart Crane, who's one of my favorite poets, a huge uh, inspiration to the book, and just someone I'm always rereading. I'm completely obsessed with him. But uh, this poem, which the title, St. Brant's Quietism, kind of happened on accident, but then once it, it was titled that, I realized, like, oh, this St. Brant, like, persona, this really works with my with my shtick so uh he, he just kept coming back to me his voice kept coming back to me so i i created a number of epigraphs of that like as a as if he was like a, a prophet or a saint to rival saint paul and stuff and writing in his time so he has a number of apoc- apocryphal books and uh quotes that are th- uh, scattered throughout the book but this particular poem doesn't use one of his epigraphs it used a poem from Hart Crane, praise for, the, praise for an Urn, There Are No Trophies of the Sun. So that's also going to be the first line. <clears throat> there are no trophies of the sun when you let what you love retain your love while you saunter to the grave less great, restrained by the love you restrained from retiring to dusk. All things run their course. We cannot keep forever in a jar the things that overfill the jar or things that in the jar dry out. All things run their course and return beyond us to their source. Now is not the time for turning back or for turning. Now is not the time for moving. That time is never, will not be. Journey into truth. Hunt for the king element. The element that gave to nature gives nature. If what you found is not the bottom of the bottom, the fire that burns fire, water that drowns water, the life that's life to life, you've stopped where you began. No matter the damage, time, and cost you've walked, the truth stops, the way ends. Once you meet the truth of you, you find yourself bitten by the Indian spider, the fiction of the soul that we pursue, the continuity of the road we wander, never knowing we tread a consuming fire, the real soul, the self, the lonely fire we come upon, the midst of nothing, in the desert burning, the dark around it, a fire unlit by hand, but will to fire, the God in the desert we pursue, we are, the wind blew through the doors, shadows stride across the floors, burning, the heat returns me to the shore, my prayers cast me from without the oars, I will accept what God says I must accept in the attitude which God accepts bad news. The whirlwind, rains, and thunder, lightning, fire, death, siege. I would, angels that deliver me God's word, in and sign the epistle I return in angels' ash, XO, XO. Another legionnaire, a nightmare, cavalier. I return God's gifts. This, the lesson of a saint, most particular to him. That's the end of that poem. Wow. ST. Is a poem letting your guard down or building a wall? So I have many thoughts on this, and I'll, I'll say that I think it's something of both. I think okay, you let you, you ultimately let your guard down because if you want to be a writer that's read, if you have that ambition to be published and be out there, uh, as opposed to someone who just writes and never shares anything but just loves the writing of it, but you have that, that separate ambition – uh, that's a lot that goes along with the the readership and the books and all that stuff. Then, to a degree, you have to square your anxieties with with that and with the inevitability of being hurt, of being vulnerable. So your guard does come down as much mm-hmm. as it needs to for you to expose yourself. And that's sort of the social realm of writing. Uh, but uh, we'll say so. But the writing itself, I think, the writing, uh, the private realm, is a breaking down of those walls for yourself. Writing. Okay. 
helps you and helps me, has always helped me break down your inner walls and explore yourself. And whether or not you keep those walls down and expose those parts of you to others, then that's the social aspect of writing. That's, that's different. But the writing itself is always a breaking. It's breaking down. It's breaking forth. Because to me, that's ultimately what, what writing means. It's exploration. It's freedom. Even if it's uh, torturous and arduous and, and makes you feel bad sometimes, it's free. Uh, there's ways to do all that while still keeping a mask on, though. Like, there, you can have a persona. You can still be a little bit uh, dispassionate. You can still be distant. And that comes off as a type of wall that, that's this persona you built because maybe you're not being certainly autobiographical. You call it an, an alter ego and all that stuff. But you can still utilize that, that distance, that alter ego, that persona and mask, and still fully expose yourself uh, mm-hmm. because – I mean, I think that's what I do in that I don't get particularly autobiographical because to me, my autobiographical details aren't important to me. <laughs> that's like my life is not important to me. It's not interesting, but the inner stuff, that's important. That's interesting. So, so when, when I'm revealing it, goes inner, that inner journey and, and going on those imaginative quests, like I, to me, I'm actually telling people the stuff about me that I find most interesting and, 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 uh, passionate about. So, I think I think it's both. Like you can build a you can build a wall a bit, but I think if you still kind of use that wall to help you break down limits, it's good. So for me, writing's breaking down of all defenses, even though some people may read a defense in there. But to mm-hmm. me, break down all defenses at the most extreme, remove any separation between yourself and the abyss, and and there you are. So, SC, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not. Why not? I think it's <laughs> what what hurts is not writing. So basically, okay. I feel like my, myself and I, I know we all want to feel unique and like we're the only one that experience these things. But I, I know that I'm I'm in a camp of writers that feel somewhat similarly in that every every instance of life is writing, even if you're not writing, like reading is writing, thinking is writing, all that stuff. It's all prep work, basically, my, I think, and I know others think as well. But in that same, that same time, every time you're not, all the seconds you're not writing, that's when you hurt. So life is constant pain. But when, when you're writing itself, when you're, sorry, excuse me, when you're caught up in, in that, that flow, that, and you're, you're in that stream being carried away by that, that that's the best you'll ever feel. To me, uh, that's absolutely not painful at all, no matter what you're saying. Like, I'm not I, – I know some people, when they, they write some stuff, they, they say it was painful to get out and all that. But even to me, if the subject matter is painful, all that, the process – the moment that you're doing it is not. It's, it's everything around that, the mundacity of life that uh, surrounds the writing. <laughs> that's the painful part. Okay. Okay. Now, we're going to take a brief break. But here's a question for you before we go. You can answer it after the break. Has a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? All right? Okay, that's good. Okay, we'll be right back. Thank you. 
We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with S.T. Brandt. His debut collection, Melody in Exile, is available now. All right, S.T., I asked you a question. What do you think about it? Yes, I think the answer is yes. I can't necessarily remember some of the poems right now because I can't remember how I felt after kind of each one, but I know it's happened. I know that mm-hmm. the poems I'm the poems that are going in the book I'm working on now, I can say yes to them because I've, the experience is still more at hand, but definitely there's been uh, poems that when I've written them, I thought like, you know, I didn't, this is right when I finished writing it. So I didn't go back and read it. So I didn't have a, a, a revisionary reaction to it. But after I, I finished it, I was like, Oh, that was, that was awesome. So you felt humbled in that moment. Cause you're like, mm-hmm. Oh man, this is like, the best thing ever, mm-hmm. or it's certainly the best thing I've done. Sometimes your opinion right. changes after that, but you feel humbled in that moment. But then there's there's definitely other poems when the fright was real for various reasons. Sometimes the fright was, is that, can I ever do this again? Or can I ever match this? Or did I just write the best thing I'll ever do? So sometimes that, that anxiety is always there. Sometimes yes. there's the fright of how I... Un- am I smart enough to, to do this? Am I able, like my harmony uh, kind of quasi epic in here uh, throughout that. And I still don't really think I finished, but I, it, it just kind of became what it is, but you throughout it the whole time, you're always kind of like, am I taking on a project bigger than what I'm capable of? So you have that fear even while you're working on it, but then there's the more uh, maybe fear that we think of where when you're writing, you discover things about yourself or you, you put things into words now, feelings into, you articulate feelings or things that maybe have been unconscious or maybe you have been denying or getting rid of. But when they come out of you, because you have to, you have to let the words come out the way they want to. Uh, mm-hmm. So when they come out, you're like, well, th- well, I guess that's true. And that recognition can be frightening because when they come out and now you must confront what you said, because you're like, oh, I, this is what I must feel. That can definitely be frightening. Wow. It sounds like you put a lot of pressure on yourself. Is that true? <laughs> I, I would it definitely. Like it's, honestly, SC sounds like a burden that you carry. Probably so. I, I've always <laughs> put a lot of pressure on myself when I, when I was little as a, and playing sports, I was always putting pressure on myself. So it's nothing new to say like, All right. <laughs> So it's not like this this grandiose sense of uh, purpose for literature, although now it it has kind of shifted that. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I I just, I guess I always just put a lot of pressure on myself because I just have really high expectations. And and I do have a a high belief in myself of being able to carry off those expectations. Uh, And so I just kind of expect to, to be able to work them. But yeah, I guess I don't, I don't really think about it because it's just kind of my day to day thing. Okay. <laughs> it, to me, it just feels normal, but yeah, right. I guess it, sounds, it sounds like pressure. <laughs> well, I'm similar in that regard. What could you do to take the pressure off yourself? The writing pressure, what could you do? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's a good question. I struggle with that all the time because sometimes the pressure does get so much that it prevents you from from mm-hmm. writing and from working because you no longer feel up to the task. But yes. in those, in those moments, I think some things that work for me uh, are reading just, I 
just trying to find something to read that you get kind of lost in, kind of get, get scrubbed up in, whether it's, you know, for research, we'll say, and you just love it and get carried away, or just, just find a book that you can maybe displace the, mm-hmm. uh, the work from and just read it for the sake of reading it. That can be helpful or go to the gym. So <laughs> that, those are you're reading or, or working out. I do all those things, but go to the gym, <laughs> which is probably the one I need to start with first. Please share another form, my friend. All right. Let's see. <clears throat> all right. This one's good. Uh, a prayer. So this uh, one kind of came out just uh, out of nowhere. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't mean to write it. I just, you know, you know, you had the feeling, and then you start going, and then you stop, and you're done. You're like, oh, I guess that's that's something. So this is kind of one of those things where we'll say just this in, intense feeling came over me, and I just followed it kind of where it went, and just let it kind of be as it is, and it turned into this little. I I kept thinking of it as a fragment, and then when I went back to read it, I'm like, huh, that that sounds kind of prayerful, or sounds like you have the ambitions of a prayer. So I titled it a prayer. And it got published in this uh, place called The Curator. And the person, the editor that accepted it, said it reminded them of, well, no, this one was published in Echo Theo. But they, they uh, this has a counterpart poem called The Hymn. And they're both kind of the similar inspiration, passion, everything. And that editor said that it reminded them of Rilke, which is one of the best compliments I've ever received because I love, right. love Rilke. <laughs> very nice, very nice. So a prayer. Empty unto me, sorry, empty me unto thee, mercy, O beginning, port of terror, port of mourning, all my words pour on you, my heart in them, in thoughts, nothing left in me but me. Empty me of all extraneous, empty me of me, resurrection, resurgence, O graft, transplot, plant, flower pot. There is no rain inside my bones, witness the blueing of my bones, purpling my soul, O gardenias of hope that hinge my joints. Empty me to thee, O new memory, I am old. Revisit me the days and dusk, hand in hand, I tramp with thee in lost lands, lost from you, sad eternity, sad blessing. That's the end of that prayer. Wow. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let's go back in the past. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? So for me, it's hard to, I, I don't have a great memory from when I was little. For Everyone mm-hmm. else seems to have all these uh, childhood memories, everything. And I can't really seem to always recall exact moments. But I, I think one of the, I, I remember I was writing a lot as a little kid, trying to write stories and stuff. But I don't know if I pieced, if I was uh, cognizant of language going on then. But I remember in middle school, we'll say, is when it kind of hit me that's when I I wanted to be a musician, write songs and all that because Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. So it was discovering Bob Dylan and his, and his lyrics and the way I felt about his lyrics and what he was able to do with words that I realized like, Oh, I like words a lot. Words are very important to me. And I, and I love them. So that experience of, of language and its power, uh, and the music is poetry. I guess that that kind of revelation that those two things are synonymous with each other uh, was, we'll say, like sixth 
sixth-ish grade when I started listening to Bob Dylan and and those other kind of folk artists like that who placed like such a huge emphasis on lyricism and, and telling stories, but telling them poetically. Right. So how has your work evolved or changed as you've aged as a poet? So I've definitely gone through phases, cycles. When I was starting, uh, we'll say in, in middle school, we'll, we'll call that my songwriting days. So I was thinking of everything as a song. So everything was verse, chorus, verse, chorus, that, that kind of structure. So it was very uh, formulaic uh, until I started like trying to be more folksy and wild. And then it, but everything was still thought of as a song. So everything mm-hmm. was still intent, even though it never rhymed particularly much, but it was still always intended to be sung and performed with music and all that. But then I, I stopped uh, when I quit the band. So then I stopped writing completely for a while. And then in high school, uh, the story was that I wanted to impress a girl. Uh, <laughs> to like, she liked my friend because he, he was a drummer. I was like, oh, okay. but I was, I, I was in his band. I wrote songs for that band. Like, but, let me see. So I, so I showed her some old songs. They weren't good, but, you know, everything's kind of impressive to people when, when you're friends with them and you're in middle and 10th grade and all that. And she's like, oh, these are, these are pretty good. Write another one. You can give it to me next Tuesday. So she became kind of like this, almost like an agent where she started giving me deadlines of writing stuff. So that's how I got back. Into, that's how I got back into it. And I just started writing a lot. And it, they were kind of all wild all over the place because I didn't really know a lot about <clears throat> poems and stuff then I was just trying my hand at lots of stuff so but I was working through a lot of feelings a lot of uh still kind of quasi Dylan-esque kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but then it it all you know you kind of track upward a little bit but it was all kind of beatnik we'll say (laughs) lots of very kind of stream of consciousy word waterfall unbroken by punctuation and all this stuff almost impossible to read in all honesty no, right. <laughs> not even that it's like bad or good just like you can't, you can't make sense of it and so well, then one thing i'm going to ask you this accessibility all right poetry has a reputation as being less accessible than prose how do you combat that perception my question is how hard should you work to solve a poem? <clears throat> yes, that, that, that's difficult because it's always going to depend on the, what the reader wants. Like some readers love that challenge, some don't. Uh, some pros, like Joyce, for example, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, he, he made it a, a mission to be more difficult than any poem you can read. So, <laughs> so, so, so pro, but Prose being more accessible than poetry is oftentimes simply because there's a, a narrative that it has an in, it has what's going on. So you know there's there's characters, there's plots, there's things that it's going for objectively, kind of track a plot and all this stuff. So it is inherently more accessible because you're it's there's a story wrapped around it. A lot of prose. You know we can get into prose that's just kind of experimental and all that. But <clears throat> poetry can be seen as more inaccessible because a lot of times there's in etherealness to it it's emotional it's not grounded we'll say with the kind of concreteness of prose because there's there's not that that journey that you're on that's narrative where things are have to be spelled out like prose and seen like prose so you Mm -hmm. 
poetry likes to be more emotional, <laughs> but I think that the, the level of accessibility is just different. We just, we try to compare them and want them to be the same, but poetry is accessible in a, in a poetic way in that I think that poetry, no matter how difficult it is, whether it's the simplest poem in the world or a kind of a modernist masterpiece that's designed to finagle you, on the first reading, uh, it, has, it has to, you have to be able to access it emotionally as an experience is what I like to think of it. Like you have to have some experience with the poem, even if it baffles you, but there has to be some little bit of degree of enjoyment with it. Like you have to love the language and maybe love an image it gave you a line or whatever, but there has to be at least something that, that you find accessible that you can ground, even if you don't understand it, but you've, you've been accessed by it because it, it's moved you, it's touched you in some way. So that's the initial one. If, if you can, if you can get into a poem that first way like that, even if you understand nothing about it, can make no sense of it, but you have an emotional connection to it because it's moved you, well, then it's, it, it's accessible because it's done something for you. And then it's just mm-hmm. a matter of you, you break it down and all that. But I, I think that because not everybody, the general reader will say, isn't an academic. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. in academia. They're just reading. So we can't yes. expect them all to read like critics and break everything down like that. As, so I think, you know, I, it, you can write on multiple levels. Like you can write something very dense and loaded with illusions and that's, and maybe the critics will break it down one day. But at the same time, while all that stuff is loaded in there, a more just general reader who just, you know, is, is smart, but they're not, they don't have the time of a critic to just devote to like a poem and all that, but they'll still be able to get tons out of it. They may not unsolve the entire puzzle, but they'll solve it mm-hmm. up a bit. So I, I think that, you know, a, a poem that makes you think for a while is good. I don't, I don't have an ideal, we'll say, like, time frame, but I think that a poem that doesn't necessarily solve itself immediately too easily for you, but that yes. lets you feel still on that first reading, then it, mm-hmm. you, you reach a good balance. All right. You know, you've talked about emotion quite a bit. I want to know, can a person be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? I think so for sure because because again it it's uh it can be execution of just language like mm-hmm. someone they they can feel beautifully simply we can say and All they right. can have beautiful thoughts or ideas about something or they can describe the something beautifully uh they and they might just have a different sort of emotional outlet or emotional channel but I think that uh because yeah, we're not all the same. Some poets maybe are more are definitely more logical than than mm-hmm. others. Like maybe I'm just more emotive, emotionally driven. But mm-hmm. definitely, I, I think that you can you can have access. Poetry won't cut you off from itself uh, oh, just wow. because you have a different <laughs> a different sort of uh, uh, operation in the world. Wow, that, I like that. Poetry will not cut you off from yourself or itself. I like that. I like that. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? And I'm going to guess you love editing or edit. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you don't. (laughs) Tell me. Talk to me. I'm actually 
uh, surprising. I'm actually a terrible editor. Really? <laughs> I, I almost <laughs> yes. I got that I, one wrong. All right. <laughs> when, when I went back to Homes for the Book, sometimes mm-hmm. it was the first time I've reread it since I called it done. Like a lot, oh. a lot of times I would write something, basically we'll call it like a hot pen. It where I just you know bleed it out, and then once mm-hmm. I can call it done, I'm like, okay, it's done, and I. Never, never go back to it. <laughs> I won't, mm-hmm. I won't read it again. To me, it's just done. I got the, I got the feelings out. I felt what I felt. That's how it's supposed to be. Uh, you know, most of the time that's wrong. They can be improved uh, in some capacity at least, but generally I don't tend to edit things, which I'm not saying is great. I should do, I should actually have a harder work, a, a better work ethic than that. But then when it came to editing these things, uh, it took me a long time to learn to edit again. Cause I kind of ha- felt like I had to do that. Mm-hmm. So editing is something that I definitely am in constant conflict with of trying okay. to find that balance of making sure that the organicness of, of it is retain remains, but then mm-hmm. correcting places where the, the passion in the moment led me to maybe being more inarticulate than I thought I was being, or I, I jumbled some, some images and all this stuff. So the passion in the moment is great, but then you got to bring, the clarity of your mind to it afterwards it will help kind of make sense of moments mm-hmm. when the passion led you astray we'll say and, and you weren't able to kind of master it in in the articulateness and eloquence that you needed so I'm, I'm definitely working to be a better editor now but even no matter how much you edit it I definitely think that once the poem's out there it, it mm-hmm. runs away from you you can edit it your, your entire life and, and have a master version, but you're mm-hmm. at some point, you know, you're done with the world. The world is done with you and you can no longer edit it. And then in time that people will make what they love, the, they, they will of the poem. So ultimately the world's interpretation is going to outrun all your, all your dealing with it at some point in time. I like the way you put words together. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that I was wrong in terms of my answer because I guess as I listen to you, I can see you being so driven that you're constantly editing. But that's not the case. And that's probably a good thing that you don't allow that to consume you. What do you think about what I just said? Yeah, there's because there's definitely I, I, it's going to drive me crazy. I can't remember his name right now, but he's a poet that I love. But mm-hmm. um, but anyway, I can't remember his name, and I'm sorry to him. He's not he's sorry. not with us anymore. He's not with us anymore okay. though. So I apologize to him in spirit. But he he was so methodical like that. He was so obsessed with editing and perfecting each poem that he only left a, a little a little book behind because mm. he just couldn't. Even when it was published, he was he was still editing them. He just couldn't be satisfied with them. So he, he had a very small uh, catalog at the, at the time of his death. It's a mon- wonderful catalog, but he just couldn't do new stuff because he couldn't move past the old stuff. And so I, I think that, yeah, it's definitely, it works. It's a double-edged sword in that sometimes your stuff's not as like crisp maybe as other people's because I don't edit it to, to the, the degree that they do. So I, it's still more, maybe more raw <laughs> than a lot of other people's, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that, I'm able to, to di- put some distance between myself and the poem does allow me to keep doing new stuff. So, wow. uh, you know, you get a bigger catalog. Sometimes it's not as refined. So it's a give mm-hmm. and take. Yes. Yes. You know, so much is happening in our world. 
the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent. What I want to know is, what do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society? So, a common answer. A common answer is to be a truth teller. I think is what a lot of writers say, and to me that that answer is always gravely unsatisfactory because okay. and I, I, it's not that I disagree with truth as an objective, but I think that in once you throw that out there, it requires so much qualification that it basically becomes a non-answer because even because then there's people who argue like there's no such thing as truth, but and that's not to say that without uh, a universal truth, there's not like little truth, so there's not the truth of the moment and all this stuff. So you just have to parse so much once you get to that point that you, you basically said nothing at all. Because mm-hmm. uh, you can certainly tell the truth, but for other people, even if you feel like you missed the mark for yourself, and then sometimes you tell your truth, even though it doesn't resonate with other people. So to me, the role of the poet being having anything to do with truth just kind of leads us a little bit astray. It's an right. unhelpful aim, even socially, because you can mm-hmm. try to tell social truths, and then you just it's the same thing. So I, I don't like to think in terms of, of truth and accuracy, especially because I feel like I'm always writing imaginative truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there, there's everything just made up all the time. I'm just aiming. So I, I certainly don't think I ever aim for, for truth, we'll say. I Maybe, okay, may, I'll qualify that. Spiritual truth, I'll say. It, it might, might be a more helpful uh, kind of goal or, or lane that I try to, to walk to aim okay. for something spiritually resonant, we'll say even. So d- depending on uh, your configurations and convolutions of spiritual, uh, I aim for something that resonates on some sort of soulful level. So okay. in, in that regard, if it resonates, I think uh, a poet's role then is to create some sort of inner resonance that in some some violent way will say disrupts life makes new uh makes something new in you and new roads in your system of living uh to alter the self ultimately i think is is a poet's role because when you alter the self then like i i said before that new self can then go out and and do something in the world can be a better person can be more patient can love differently and have and that person then has a social impact but to me personally the role of the poet is always going to be on that personal level uh, rather than the social level, because then people change the social world, but you got to change people. So I feel Mm. like attacking the people's minds and feelings and trying to get them to think about themselves and all those things, especially because feeling is hard to do anymore. So if if there were so, there's so many blockades to feeling and sensation, all that stuff there. So even when people feel things, they feel it maybe gently or lightly because nothing gets all the way through to them. So I think the idea is to get uh, free that debris from around people's hearts, we'll say, and get to the heart of the matter. And then once you get to the heart of the matter, you can get to the heart of the subject. And that's the role of the poet, to get to the heart in whatever way, <laughs> spiritual truth, uh, social aims or whatever, but just get to, the, get to someone's heart. Wow. You know, I can really tell that you're a teacher just the way, I can. <laughs> the way you emphasize points. I really can. You know, we've reached my favorite part of this program, I call it a mini poetry concert, M-I-N-I. This is your opportunity, S-T, to share two or three of your works, no interruptions for me, no questions, two or three of your works, back to back, you're on the stage right now, my friend. 
All right, thank you. I appreciate that. So, all right, I think I got some good three. All right. All right. Admiring the birds in love is the name of this poem. Admiring the birds in love. What bright, delightful vengeance gave you your sunshine tongue, your throat turned sunflower, petaled your lips with half-pain moons. Open all the windows, doors, pry up all the floors. Sealed is all the light and dark light. Windows, the light rains through, raining, raining rays gathering on the ground into a field of your stinging throats. The dark eats the knobs of all enclosures. Take the night in hand, sing, let out the light and dark that darkens dark into shine and see effervescence bleed everything. And in everything, bright past all fathom. Floorboards down the depths take me to plant in knowing and know life. Sing, sunshine, the dissension song sung to Eve in the heart in, in her ears as she walked Eden with Adam babbling about the taste of angel sweets on chaos's carousel. Melody vertiginous with measure, her downward climb climbs, graphs on harmony, climbs. In the tool of eternity, the vision on the hill you see when free beyond the reckoning that ruins us to reality, where Adam tucks us into wake with unbouqueted sensations and unbouqueted reality. What is the curse that closed the gold eyes of the heart for the mind's metal eyes? Light, light burn up windows, doors, and floors. Sing the song that turned those dizzy angels into birds. Met melody has all the secrets life can't translate. Life is a language of light that to our living senses does not belong. A melody, a melody, a light that Melly wrapped in herself in writing the song. That's the end of that poem. <laughs> So poem number two, The Innocence of Experience, which is a play on a William, William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. It was just me thinking I was clever thinking that innocence as, is experience itself as opposed to we often think of that once you experience things, innocence sort of drowns. So The Innocence of Experience. Our innocence we kept between the pages of our books, pressed as petals from aged roses too long loitered on the sill, as the favorite leaves we picked from the lawns about our walks, pink as the roses were before age unblushed them, keepsakes of old heartaches, a museum of loves lived and lost or let go of. When all of life was in the sun, the story and night dispelled in kisses, horizons north and south of lips, the compass of love's postulate. Today is not the day to fall apart. Occasions will arise that sponsor ruin, but today is not the day to fall apart. It is still the season of the heart though the heart is older and grown vulnerable. But that is reason to embolden, because it is the season of the heart, though old and vulnerable. But not today it falls apart, love. Ruin may be on the way, but love remembers all its pains, has them tucked away, and still returns to play beneath the sun of younger days. That's the end of that poem. Mm -hmm. And now here's the third one that I call Life Song, which is actually a poem that I... Uh, it's one of those, those things that you feel like you always like more than other people. So I was always very, <laughs> I was always very stubborn with it, being like, "No, this is this is one of my top ones. No one else seemed to." <laughs> a lot of All people right. didn't see it that way. Right? All, right. All right. I made sure to get it in the book because I'm like, one of these days I'm going to be right. People are going to remember that I called my. All shot. right. If you don't believe in yourself, who else will? <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so life song. I will teach the wind to tie the ribbons in your hair, to curl so softly the twirls that twirl your hair, and blow a great panic with a calmness at its heart, a pageant, marching and displaying to the world the beauty it's forgot through your hair. 
your very hair that's plain to you but fair and rich into the poor cruel world insuperable how your hair calls the sun from the bottom of a well i will tell the birds to sing and sing they will and sing so well that sound will never know it is it not its will for i have loved you not so well as to be content that i am plain every day that you might love me for those boring hills you walk each day that you stop upon to notice flowers every day that are as nature made them that perish in the perish season that bloom and live in life's season, but that I need to be more a God to keep your love from love's apostasies, that love picks plain flowers and bands them in its hair, that the wind blows out and the season kills. If that's my love, it's gone tomorrow, though I remain in love tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, still lingering in love, though I am crushed petals on the ground. For all time, I come to you in love and a tyrant love that shall not keep if your love abhor the will of love, that thought subjection of the will of love. And nonetheless, a crushed petal in love's season, imploring you as a god undone to stay visiting my temple with ancient love. That's the end of that poem. Wow. With that particular piece, you reminded me of Pablo Neruda. I, I do love Neruda. Neruda, so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> There's a lot of synchronicities tonight. <laughs> Let me ask this question. Do you think you were meant to be a poet, SG? <clears throat> Yes, that's. I think ultimately, yes, I, you know, it's one of those things where you, you've told yourself a million times, like, ah, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. So I definitely feel like that I, I lucked into finding uh, some the, the thing that resonates with me, that I'm immensely passionate, that means the world to me, and that uh, <laughs> I, I can't imagine now life without and that life would feel and be without. Oh, wow. Sometimes... Uh, you know, it's always a worry of like, will you ever find that thing? And I think for, I was very fortunate that I did find that thing that mm-hmm. suits me. My, my purpose, we'll call it. But at the same oh, time, wow. destiny doesn't do the writing. So I don't like wow. to get uh, get complacent it with inevitability and think like, oh, I, I'm in my role. Here's what I, I'm meant to do this because if you because <laughs> you can you can get too too caught up with fate and think that like, oh fate will take care of everything, but no, you got to do the work. So while I think I'm in the right role for myself and, and it's the only role I can imagine, I, I got to make sure that there's still some, some willpower and some action behind the, this idea that fate, that there's some fate in this as well. Destiny does not do the writing. Did you make that up? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> like did you, did you make that up? <laughs> did you make it up on the spot? Because that was great. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> you stood up. <laughs> I, I'm able to, to ramble and say some things pretty well. <laughs> like I said, the way that you put words together, that was great. Well, let me ask you this question. What surprises you most about being a poet? <clears throat> There's definitely a lot of things and that it, it kind of like life in general is a surprise because when you read other poets and read about poets, like biographies of them and stuff, you feel mm-hmm. that you're similar but different from them. And so okay. it surprises, kind of constantly surprises you that things don't work as kind of a universal way, that we we absorb senses different, we export those uh, machinations different in, in our thinking and that we all have a different process and that things, some people work harder than others. Some people are more free flowing than others. And whereas their method is less, we'll say like rigorous or methodological, 
uh, methodical than, uh, than another person. So it's always a surprise to kind of have to accept your, yourself and your own system of things because mm-hmm. everything kind of puts that in doubt for you. It makes you feel like you're doing something wrong, that uh, there's a better way to do this or that your, your system will not yield the right results. So it's always a surprise to just write the next poem and realize like, oh, what I'm doing works. It works for you because uh, it's your thing but it's all the next poem is always a surprise in in that regard and then professionally there's a the surprise of just how many people are writing <laughs> like it mm-hmm. the, the competitiveness is not something that you anticipate when you just mm-hmm. romantically set out writing as like a teenager and then you yes. get uh, get to be an adult and there's all these book contests and there's so many journals out there and so many people submitting that you get rejected. So there's a surprise that what you're doing works, but then there's also the surprise of like, Oh geez, there's a lot of competition out here. Mm-hmm. You know, here's my last official question to you because we've reached the end of our poetic journey. What I want to know is writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to their audience. Others write because staying silent is not an option. ST, why do you write? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I wrote songs, uh, started writing songs because I, it made sense to me. I like, I liked that better than the music part. So I guess okay. as, as a young person, as even back in middle school, I, like writing made sense to me and that it just made the most sense in the world of like, you feel these things, you write them down. But then obviously mm-hmm. I stopped. So that, that sense of like feeling things didn't stop. But then there was that, that stage where it became to impress a, a girl and then to impress people. Like, you, you, want, atten- you want people to, to applaud you and everything. Even, mm-hmm. But then you, keep, you have to keep going for some reason. So mm-hmm. you have to keep going for yourself. And ultimately, like, I, the drive of, like, the message or the can't stay silent for me, I don't know if it's not because I definitely have long patches of silence, okay. <laughs> and and while okay. and while they and while they kill me, uh, I I am still alive. So I, I think for me the simple answer is just sort of a compulsion. Like it, you you just have to do it. Like you never thought about not doing it. It's just mm-hmm. you. I words pop into your head. You write them down. You just kind of follow the where the pulse leads you. Oh wow, St. What's next for you creatively? So where do you go from here? I'm working on a couple of things. Uh, I feel like Melody in Exile will 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 be like something of a prequel to excuse me to a, a long conceptual project I'm working on that it will the next poems will still feature some some of the same themes because they seem to be my themes, but. Uh, it's a St. Brant book, basically, where uh, I explore, I kind of go on a Dante-esque journey traveling through, like, previous incarnations of life, and St. Brant is, is in that, so I just have to kind of work out the entire story at that point, but it's a mini epic is, is in my mind, so it's definitely poems, but there's a, concept, a story, a narrative story, and also a conceptual story, and then I'm also working on uh, dramatic cycle because I like to write plays too, and that dramatic cycle oh. will still tie into the poetry somehow. So I'm working on this oh, wow. this big inter- intertwining ball ball of yarn, we'll say of of stories, but a poetic cycle about Las Vegas, and then uh, a whole volume of poems that that track like uh, reincarnations. 
Oh, wow. How can people stay in touch with you, SG? So my website, uh, shanebrandt.com, uh, has links to my personal websites, uh, where, and then there's a, a contact form on there, too. So you can also email me there if you don't happen to have a, a Twitter or Instagram, and then we can, I, I'll respond to your email and all that. So you can email me on shanebrandt.com or Twitter, which is what I use the most. And my handle is at TerribleBinth, which is a joke because like the TerribleBinth tree, but it's just TerribleBinth. So okay. Twitter at TerribleBinth or Instagram at Shane Lemayne instead of Charlemagne, Shane Lemayne. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Melody in Exile, where can it be found? So on my website, you can order it. Uh, you just go to the purchase option. It will take you to an Amazon link. So you can definitely order it from Amazon, but it's also on barnesandnoble.com. It's on pals.com. It's on uh, in uh, bookseller. So it's basically on, on any sort of bookstore website or, or chain like that. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pals. Those are like the three big ones. All right. SC, do you have one more poem in you to send yeah. us home? <laughs> Let's see. What's a good finale here? That's right, finale. <laughs> All right, yeah, I, I have, I like uh, this this one a lot. Okay. Uh, it, it's a dialogue. It's called Heirs of Atreus. So I got this kind of form from from Yeats because he had these poems where they'd be two speakers and all he did was just like name them he or she or, or all that. So I did the same thing with this where it's a dialogue between he and she. And so while I'm reading it, before each each stanza, I'll I'll say he or say she, and that will kind of indicate that you have two characters talking. <clears throat> so heirs of Atreus, he. Your heart goes through the rapids for your life to be streams. What's love to us? Float, be, swim, end. What overhangs the river is a tree, Eden hanging from its leaves. The sun extends its beams through the tempting branch, dives shining into the flow to flower some shadow of a paradise you've forgotten in your heart, sailing undeterredly downstream. Its color, substance, its reality, a god bleeding toppled mitts from heaven in your open seams. Memory floods the river of your being, but you, we all, are tantalous, deprived of reach. She, life is the tangle of our yarn and brambles, unraveling the coat that's warm against the rain and chains against the thorns. The dead are streetlights in our conscience, where we are in constant dark, but for the speckled wisdom they impart. Here is played our scene of fire, when our hearts are washed in oil, and their saturation reconciles the, the libation to our souls to meet the phoenix needs, will burn whole. He, lost leaves in the lamplight, I have left the, lead, the life led in the spring to listen to the songs that winter sings, if they can lead to a new being, if they can re-sing harmony and undesolate all knowing. Age has pitched me to the desert lonely. A frond of fire on a palm burnt off, lest the garden flare in all of life as Eden was, a sun on earth. No, that is not the life desired by the trees, the leaves. I blow into the desert a new Hyperion to wander toward the mountains for a home. She, the fronds of fire on the palms in the fire garden stitching gold across the sky, the stitching orioles in sunshine, the fire and life in my heart will hum beyond the end. And that's the end of that poem. Wow. You know, S.T., you are truly a deep thinker. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it is what it is. You are. 
And I wish you nothing but continued success. Your star is on the rise. I want you to return to the show sometime. I don't know when. We'll talk about it. (laughs) Absolutely. This this is really fun. (laughs) I'm glad. Did you calm down just a little bit? Sounds like you did. (laughs) Yeah. Once once, uh, we went on air, then my... uh, I don't know, we'll call it maybe like some, some kind of alter persona took over and <laughs> called me down. All right, good. Because <laughs> I really enjoyed listening to you. So, so you know, you're a teacher. I've got to ask this. What do you teach? I teach uh, 11th and 12th grade English, and then I also teach journalism. Oh, wow. Why am I not surprised? You may have mentioned that earlier. But I need to hear it again. <laughs> you are the man. So thank you for joining me. And uh, again, I wish you nothing but success. Melody in exile, everyone. Thank you like so much. Say, yes, yes. You want to say something? I'm sorry. No, no. I just wanted to thank you for, for having me as a guest. I really appreciate it. Oh, yes. You're more than welcome. And like I said, again, I want you to return. All right. That's the end of our program. And to the listeners, you know, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everyone. Good night, ST. Good night. Take care of Las Vegas. All right. Bye. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.